Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10. Today, I'm going to be talking to Paul LeBeau. Now, I've known Paul for a few years. I had the pleasure of interviewing him a few years back, and um, I really enjoy getting to talk to Paul whenever I can. Um, He's just a really fun person to know, and talking with him is always a pleasure. And uh, we're always able to digress about all kinds of food topics around bread, and uh, it's just really fun to, to know him and get to talk to him. Uh, Paul's a shareholder and the managing director of the German company Mockmill, run by Wolfgang Mock in Germany. Um, Paul's mission in the grain and breads world began about six years ago when he joined Wolfgang Mock's uh, decades-old campaign to get consumers milling their own grain. Um, Milling your own grain was probably something that was kind of far-fetched a few years ago, but as we've all seen in recent, uh, the last, just the last year, there's been a huge resurgence of it, and people are very interested in grain and bread. Paul's accomplishments include the establishment of the mock mill brand in baking circles around the globe, his educational promotion on whole food baking through participation at baking events and his lively presence in the social media world are well known. Um, Paul has been instrumental in the U.S. grain movement to get people using small-scale produced grain to do home milling to create bread and other foodstuffs. And Paul believes that home milling is more than just a practice, but something that is at the forefront of healthy lifestyle. You're going to hear from the conversation. We're going to digress on this more and talk about it. It's something I'm very passionate about. And um, as you've seen from prior interviews with people, um, that I've talked to previously who have cookbooks on alternative grains or have, um, you know, gluten-free bakeries, that um, alternative grains, ancient grains, and uh, small-scale produced grains are very important right now. And a lot of people are looking into this. It's a really hot topic. It's something I really got to enjoy talking to Paul about, and I think you're going to detect that passion there. Paul's one of those guys that I feel like I could talk to all day, and luckily I get to talk to him often, so... Um, that's always a treat. So uh, I think you'll pick that up in the interview. So I'm going to go right to it without further ado. Here we are. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I'm having the pleasure of talking with Paul LeBeau from Wolfgang Mock Company, Mock Mill Company. Paul, thank you for being on the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Dean. Greetings to uh, greetings to North America and to California. Oh yeah, it's um, well, uh, you're, and you're in Germany, correct? Right. What city in uh, Germany are you in? Um, we're in a very small place called Otsberg, uh, which is hard to find except on Google Maps. Um, but we're for um, people who know Germany a little bit, we're just east of Darmstadt, which is an historically important place. And for those who just know the world according to its airports, we're um, not very far from the end of the runway at Frankfurt International Airport. Now, you're from Houston, am I correct? Right. I grew up in Houston. Uh, I was actually born in central Illinois, um, a place I've really never returned to. Um, but, uh, but I grew up in Houston, and I, I, uh, I lived in, in Houston and really only knew until I was about 18, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Houston area, a little bit of other parts of Texas and some of Louisiana. Um, oh, yeah. Nice. Um, so how did you come to work for um, Wolfgang Mock Company in Germany? Well, that's a great question. You know, the, the long story is I met a girl 
um, and uh, a woman actually, and uh, 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 began a relationship with her. And she was a tenant of Wolfgang at the farm that he and his wife had um, bought uh, 20 years previously. Um, and, um, and, and so uh, over the years, I became a friend of a neighbor of Wolfgang's and then a friend. And um, I, I was at that time still the kind of um, gray suit, black shoes, white shirt, red tie guy. Um, who I'm not anymore, um, and, and he was very suspicious of people like that, um, which I can understand better today than I could back then. <laughs> but uh, at that time, I had, had uh, just uh, joined a, an Australian startup in the biotech field, and I was to be their man for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and uh, to, to uh, start this company up from, from nothing, and it eventually became a, a roaring success in that industry that people know better today for better and for worse, which, which is the uh, in vitro diagnostic industry. It's where all these tests come for that we're come from that we're using for COVID. And it's also the industry that uh, um, 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 Theranos uh, tried to uh, uh, tried to take by storm. So I was part of that industry. And Wolfgang watched me build this um, uh, this business up very, very successfully here. And, and so when it came time for me to make a change, he said, why don't you change and come to me and help me uh, build up uh, my third startup in, um, in Homestone Mills. Um, so and, uh, you know, I, I looked at the business over a period of time and uh, I looked at the advantages that would have. I looked at the, the risk and the excitement of taking a completely different change professionally as you approach 60 and uh, decided to go for it. Can you tell um, the listeners who are not familiar with the product what the mock mill is and um, what, what the company produces? Sure. <clears throat> the mock mill is really what we feel the, the most modern, most advanced version of the oldest kitchen appliance of humankind. Um, so if you, if you go to a, 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 a museum about the prehistoric age, you're you're bound to find, uh, find evidence that people have been using uh, two stones to break seeds since the very, very beginning of time. Uh, so it's probably uh, uh, the oldest kitchen appliance there is. And, and what we have is um, what we think is the most advanced version of that. Um, that's not the point because even with a less advanced version, you can really, um, uh, do a pretty good job of breaking seeds up and milling them down the flour, um, but that's that's what we have. So it's a um, it's a uh, uh, a very efficient, very uh, neat, tidy, clean, simple, uh, and affordable tool that's a real life changer um, because we're able to go back to that old human tradition of of collecting seeds and uh, and breaking them open when we want to use them for food. It's funny because talking to you about this, I, I talked to a couple of other authors just in the last month who have cookbooks about alternative grains and stuff. And the one thing that I hear the most is that there, I think there was some difficulty in them finding things that they could use to grind various things. And of course there's, you know, always, you know, coffee grinders, which I think are highly inefficient for the task. So um, can you tell us about, um, your work as a baker and, and how maybe this inspired your work with um, mock mill and um, what mock mills do? Well, sure. Um, 
when, when I joined Wolfgang, uh, my first job was to kind of um, get the lay of the land, analyze the situation. Why, uh, why, um, why does anybody want a tool like this? Um, what's going to make people, what stories are going to make people want to buy it? What, what good is it going to do people? And there's a a beginner in the field and uh, in the field of uh, uh, really of food, I had to, to do a lot of exploration. So I spent three or four months um, uh, just with my nose in the internet and making lots of phone calls and actually made a big trip to the US uh, to visit every, every leader in the, in the grain revolution I could, in the baking revolution I could, uh, could get in touch with. Um, <clears throat> But somewhere in, the, in, there, in those first months, I realized, well, you know, if I'm going to get involved in this, um, I'm going to get passionate about it. And that passion is, um, is going to come also from the doing. I've got to start baking. And uh, kind of fortunately, I, I was uh, staying at the home of a cousin in mine in, uh, in um, Evanston, Illinois, outside of Chicago, which happens to be right down the street from, uh, um, from Hewn Bakery, Ellen King's Bakery there. And, uh, and I wanted to thank my cousin. So I gave her uh, a little mock mill, a little attachment for the KitchenAid, which is all we had at the time. And she said, well, great, well, how am I gonna use this? And I said, we well, just make your flour and bake it. Well, how am I gonna bake bread? And I said, well, you know, you really need to bake sourdough bread. And I said, she said, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, I'm not so sure. So <laughs> we got out the laptop and we looked up um, Breadtopia's um, uh, recipe for making 100% uh, well, making a, a sourdough bread with 100% um, freshly milled spelt. And we went down to Whole Foods and bought some spelt. And we went over to Ellen and connived her into giving us a bit of sourdough starter. And with the video, we sat down and began baking bread. So that's uh, when I got back to Germany, um, Wolfgang was a bit surprised because he'd been after me to, to get my hands into the dough for some time. And I'd, I'd sort of been putting it off. So uh, um, that's how I got started. And, uh, and it really has become a passion. Just ask my family. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So I've read a lot of authors on bread and flour, and I'm, I'm sure you do as well. And what authors are you reading about bread and bread baking, or have you read? Well, that's a great question, because um, I started, you know, uh, devouring as many books as I could find on different subjects. And, I, and to be quite honest, I, I didn't start with, with bread or baking. I started with food and, and, and what, you know, how do we feed ourselves and how ought we feed ourselves and what is the way forward to feeding ourselves better? Because I came to realize early in those, that investigation I was making that um, if, if one was going to really um, change the, the, what we in business call the penetration rate, the, the percentage of the population that, that uses this tool that Wolfgang been, had been designing and, and, and pushing for 35 years, um, 
one was going to have to um, find a problem that it solved. And so I became very, very interested in the problem of the food system. And the book that really put all the light bulbs uh, on in my, in my head was Dan Barber's book, The Third Plate. Uh, and so I always mention that. I think Dan has uh, probably had the most influence on my thinking because as I read this book, I said, that's it, you know? We make this stuff that this guy is saying ought to happen, we make it uh, more doable. And, um, and so that, that's really one of the, the biggest books I read early on. But then I met and met and, and, and read Maria Speck's book. She was one of the first people talking about, uh, about uh, heritage grains and whole grains. And it turned out she had had three of Wolfgang's mills and she's been milling since her uh, youth in Germany. And she's a, she's a wonderful person. And then uh, I, I met Ellen King. Her book came out later, but it's a great one. Uh, and I've, the list is really, really long. And uh, of late, I've gravitated towards um, the people who have picked up on, on the milling and said, wow, this has got to be included in our book if it's not going to be the central sort of part of our book. And, and so Ellen's was one of the first ones to say here, the mock mill is a great tool to have and milling your own food is great. Um, Adam Leonti um, uh, wrote a book called Bread Lab. Which, um, which talks about exactly that. Uh, and and, and uh, so I, I found that book really to be great. Um, I also like um, to read uh, books that are composiums of different bakers coming together. And one interesting series is the Respectus Panis um, uh, series, which I can thankfully read in French. It's also translated in English, uh, uh, but it remains very French. So. Um, it's nice to be able to, to, to read it in French. And there, again, we're talking about a better way of baking bread from a French point of view and uh, um, to an, speaking to an international audience. And uh, I find those books really great. Um, and then there's just there's some other outstanding books. Uh, uh, Martin Phillips' book. Martin is the uh, head baker at, uh, at King Arthur Flower. And uh, a fellow I've been lucky enough to uh, to to go elbow to elbow with in the in the baking lab at Peter Univers Peter Reinhardt's University, and and that's the one baking book I've read cover to cover because it's such a great story, uh, such a great and deeply moving personal story of somebody who gives up everything, gives up the you know the the high end six six figure salary and the glass office looking over New York City and goes out to live in a you know, in a poorly insulated uh, century-old uh, cabin, basically, with his family in Vermont to become a baker and then and bakes his way up to a leadership position at a company like King Arthur. Fantastic story. And and these are the books that I love, and there's so many of them. Michael Calanti's book uh, on, on books on baking bread and baking more bread. Um, but many of these are personal stories. And I think uh, every baker's got a story because you only become a serious baker um, if, if, it's, if, if, if baking speaks to your soul. And when it does, you're ready to give up all kinds of the traps of modern life um, that most of us are kind of um, uh, caught in in order to pursue that, um, that really deep message that, uh, um, that, 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 that comes to you when, you when you plunge your hands in the dough. And so I love reading all those. Well, you know, by the way, I can't, I, I got to mention the, 
most recent books that have me excited are Vanessa Kimball's books on, on, on sourdough and how it heals the gut. And, and she uh, is, a, is a great and adamant uh, promoter of fresh milling and of, of taking advantage of owning a mill to, um, to include a plethora of ingredients in every loaf you bake to make sure you get the most wholesome possible um, possible uh, uh, bread. And so her work is, I think, um, really uh, leading uh, in the field these days. Well, it's funny because I, you know, I've read a lot of cookbooks in the last couple of years, and I'm seeing this kind of like growing movement towards um, using like the non-big company grains and using like heritage grains and using different types of grains. And I mean, it's becoming like a really huge thing. And we're also looking at maybe not, um, you know, over, over farming, you know, with some of the big grain crops that we've been doing in the middle, in the Midwest. And like, I have to, I have to wonder, like, it must be exciting to work for a company that's kind of contributing to this like revolution. It must be very exciting for your company to kind of be a part of this whole thing. I think it's, it's exciting. And I, uh, I've been lucky in life because I've been in, in my old in my old um, uh, career. I was part of some really really exciting things. I mean, uh, I'll never forget the day in 1985 where the marketing manager came barreling out of his office at five o'clock on a on a Friday afternoon and said, "Lock the doors. Nobody's going home. The FDA just approved the first AIDS test, and we've got to have it packaged up and ready to go on Monday morning." And we spent the whole weekend. Um, uh, called everybody who was available back in the office. We spent the whole weekend trying to figure out how we were going to avoid one hour's delay in uh, making the world's blood supply safe again. Uh, that's, that was incredibly, incredibly exciting. Uh, I've, I've been involved in, uh, I was the first guy in the field to show um, uh, pathologists and gynecologists a new way of prepare, preparing cells um, uh, from a, a woman's womb to be used to, to um, detect early signs of a, a cancerous situation uh, to prevent a disease that in our mother's generation killed more women than anything else uh, if they didn't um, you know, die of an accident. Uh, and um, and more recently, I made a big contribution in, in uh, bringing together a better, bringing to the world a better test um, for tuberculosis, which kills 2 million people a year. So I've, I've had these really exciting um, uh, adventures in starting off with something new where everybody doubts that it's of any value, and it turns out to be of great value. And, uh, and so I'm not so uh, take, you know, so, so how can I say it? I'm not so uh, in awe of what's of being part of what's going on in the food revolution. Um, but I do think it's bigger than any of those other things that I've been involved in. I think what, what, what uh, Wolfgang Muck, what Markmill is doing is a bigger contribution to humanity, even than getting that first AIDS test out was. Yeah, because uh, it's 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 it touches everybody. Um, what's going on is going to is going to improve uh, our lives in our lifetime. We people are in the last third of life. Uh, if we get into this, we're going to have a better that that third of our life is going to be better, and it's going to help our kids, our little bitty kids, who are learning not to just eat food out of plastic 
packages and already cut up, but to really get to learn about their own food and choose it carefully, that's going to make their lives better than ours have been. And I think that's huge and, and we're all very proud to be a, a part of it. Our little German company is, I think, sometimes a little bit overwhelmed. You know, we, we get, we're getting orders from 90 countries around the world and, uh, and um, you know, having to kind of remake ourselves as we go along. That's really, uh, really pretty overwhelming, but it's a lot of fun. And we've yeah. got a great bunch of people that are determined to, uh, to make that contribution. Well, there's a lot of fans out there of the product. When I read about it on, when I read the product reviews on Amazon, or I've looked at the comments on it, it's always so favorable and people are, the testimonials are incredible. You must have like a big culture surrounding the mock mill. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, the, the culture is, is really um, Wolfgang's legacy. And uh, Wolfgang Mock is a, is a fascinating, uh, is a fascinating figure. Um, he, uh, you know, he's one of those guys who was, um, born, you know, a year and a quarter after the world war II ended in Germany and, and Germany was going to be in kind of famine state for another five years. Uh, the Wirtschaftswunder kind of got going when he was about seven or eight or something like that, but his, uh, his family situation was not favorable. And, and so he's always been, you know, very much his own, his own person, and he's a highly gifted person. And so we, I don't know if you know many gifted people like that, but they often have a hard time figuring out that they are gifted and what they're going to do with those gifts. And uh, uh, so his story is really, really interesting. But the main point for us is that at 29, when he was just about to finish his university work to become a psychologist working on uh, autism, Somebody bought them this loaf of bread and it changed his life. And he, he started to understand um, how we were using cereal grains and that it was a total anomaly and that the bread that had been, that he had gotten as a child in you know, war ravaged Germany was actually better than what he was able to get you know, as a young man. And so um, he became passionate about this he likes to laugh about how he basically alienated everybody he knew by his passion, and he warns me against that all the time. <laughs> but um, uh, that's the, the, you know, his legacy is this company, and he, he's always been determined to find a way to build a better, a better mill. And we talk a lot about how we could improve our mills, and we go through the iterations, and he's, uh, he's fabulously uh, um, passionate about that. Since the quarantine, there's been a huge resurgence in home baking, and a lot of people are doing the obligatory sourdough, of course, and they're making a lot of bread. I mean, I think the sales for bread making products, like anywhere from bread pans to different like cloches to put bread in, everything, even down to something like as simple as uh, the razors we cut the the score of the top with are all, they're flying off the shelves. I mean, it's it, you can't keep it in stock, Amazon's full of it. And like, when I go to the store, in the section where flour is sold, alternative flours, you can't keep them on the shelf. I mean, all Bob's Red Mill products, just like it's on the shelf in a second and it's gone. How has all this um, influenced um, the, your company? Has there been a surprise in your company about this kind of rapid um, grassroots well, I, movement? I think it's the kind of thing that, uh, that uh, we, I'm going to say hope for, some people would say pray for, 
Um, uh, and I actually kind of expected, um, but I didn't expect it to come thanks to a pandemic. I, I kind of, in a very, in Germany, we say a blue-eyed way. It means a naive way. I thought that just all the hard work and the way this thing fits into um, what the great people in the different grain chains and the different parts of the grain revolution have been doing for decades, um, that this was just gonna happen naturally. But as it turned out, COVID did give us a great big bump, um, but it didn't give us a kind of a rocket boost. It's not as, okay, now we're on our way to the moon. Right. Um, I think it, it, um, uh, it did convince us that we have a, that we have a real life company that um, that we can uh, build a brand, grain, uh, gain recognition, make a change in a significant number of people's lives every year, and keep doing our work. Um, and I think that's the that's what we're after. We're we're never going to get rich. We're not going to be able to roll this out to some company that pays us gazillions for it, and like you would in a high tech situation. And all we want um, is to be able to keep doing our job and keep working at that ideal that Wolfgang set up, hey, everybody ought to have one of these things. Everybody ought to be um, appreciating freshly milled whole grains and everybody ought to be appreciating more and more different kinds of foods. And we just want to keep on telling that story. So I think that the, um, uh, it would be a big exaggeration to say that mock mills fly off the shelves. Uh, we still celebrate every order that comes in, whether it's a single consumer ordering something off our website or a new customer, a new distributor in some faraway country um, sending us an order for a pallet of mock mills. Um, and we, you know, we still know that we depend on that um, growth to, to keep employing the good people we employ and to someday be able to spend a little bit of money uh, getting the message out there because today we, we just work uh, as most small companies do with a, with a minimal marketing budget and on social media and we, we create all our own content and, and, uh, and we focus on um, keeping the people who invest in our company by buying our product, keeping them happy. Those are, you know, that's what we do. So it hasn't been a, a huge boom and all of a sudden um, we're now, you know, we've got our feet up on the desk and we're enjoying it. Um, I do know from people like uh, our friends at Breadtopia that it's really hard to keep uh, uh, keep uh, uh, proofing baskets in stock. <laughs> yes, and, and and companies like theirs have been really overwhelmed because they don't just have one product line to kind of crank up. They've got to figure out how to get these products from all over the world that they need and have enough of them and not have too many of them. And so it, it's a big challenge for that. What was a, a tiny little um, kind of cottage industry uh, 10 years ago. Why does the world need mock mill? Why would you uh, suggest it for people? Well, I think the world needs mock mill because we, um, we don't understand, we don't have a connection to uh, the types of foods that um, deliver 40% or so of our calories. I mean, the energy that we get. Uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. If, 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 uh, if we talk about juices or wine, everybody knows the fruit. You know, you drink some wine. Wow, this is really good. It's really interesting. No, 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 no. You know what grapes are. You've also, you could be munching some grapes while you drink some wine, right? Right. Um, we, I'm sure that most of the tomatoes in the world that are sold in the world get sold processed as 
ketchup or as tomato sauce or something like that. But everybody knows what a tomato looks like. Right. Everybody can slice a tomato, bite into a tomato, enjoy fresh tomatoes, learn about different kinds of tomatoes and so forth and so on. But unless people get equipped with a stone mill, they can't really appreciate uh, and get acquainted with uh, cereal grains. And cereal grains, as you pointed out um, to me earlier today, you know, they're just hugely important in terms of their contribution to our food basket. So mock mill makes it possible for people to discover cereal grains. And, and I think that that uh, by itself is important, but what it that discovery does is it leads to an interest. That means that people start to discover grains in a different way than they can discover grains by buying them processed. Uh, it isn't just the fact of looking at grains and feeling them and picking up a handful of grains and considering the fact that in these 10,000 grains that are going into your loaf of bread, each one's a life that could be a mother plant and have lots of baby plants in a, in a short time. Uh, beyond that, you get to use the whole food. And that's the big difference as, as, uh, as my friend uh, Christian Remessy of the, of the French uh, uh, Research Institute um, uh, for Agricultural um, uh, Topics talks about. He, he says it's such a huge departure what we have today from what our ancestors did when they ran around collecting seeds, breaking them up between two stones and, uh, and, and soaking them to ferment them and then later putting them in the fire. It's a huge downward spiral towards um, using only the, the energy carriers, only the endosperm of just a very, very few grains. And among those few grain types, using a very, very narrow variety of, of, of what is naturally an amazingly large uh, and rich variety. So mock mill, opens up a lot of doors. It opens up the door of discovery to the individual, but I think it also opens up markets for the people who are going to the trouble to plant different grains, going to the trouble to plant grains for which there's not a commodity market. There's not a guaranteed, um, you know, there's not a guarantee that somebody will, will buy what you need to get for those special grains when you grow them. Uh, you're taking a huge risk. And, um, the funny thing is that what that farmer needs to get for those special grains from a consumer is um, not very much more than a consumer is ready to pay for just an extraction uh, of, uh, of a kind of you know, bland commodity grain um, that isn't going to provide him anywhere near the nutrition and certainly not the um, the how can I say it, the richness of that, of that uh, distinctive grain that he can buy and now use. So it opens up markets for people who are ready to provide stuff. Um, it then uh, people say, oh, gee, what else can I mill? They start uh, thinking beyond um, just wheat flour. Um, my friend um, <clears throat> Charmel at, um, at Selu, which is a great bakery in Washington, D.C., if you're ever out there, is the pastry chef there. And he said, when I got there, the, the new boss, you know, my, my, we're just opening up and my new boss, uh, Jonathan, said to me, I want you to avoid using wheat whenever you can. 
you can, you're going to need wheat for your uh, laminated pastries, but otherwise pastry doesn't need wheat. It doesn't need gluten. You end up fighting the gluten when you're a pastry chef. You, it's one of the reasons you put so much fat into it to break the, you know, to keep the gluten from dominating. He said, so use other things, please. And Charbel said, I, I said, what? You know, how am I going to, I can't, you know, be a pastry chef without pastry flour, you know? And, uh, and Jonathan said, well, let's just get you one of these little mills and get to work with you. There's a lot of things you can mill. And in the meantime, he says, it's fantastic. We, we use a lot of sorghum. We use a lot of buckwheat. We use millet. Uh, we bake cakes with rye. Uh, and we just avoid using wheat. Uh, and the story is there's nothing wrong with wheat, but there's something wrong with being so focused on it that you don't use any of the other great foods. Right. So people are baking bread and pastries and cookies and everything else using bean flour, which is a fantastic way to get your pulses, your pulse intake to get the great proteins and fibers that are in pulses. They're using bean flour to thicken their sauces, which is a great alternative to using white flour to make your roux, you know, um, and, and the story goes on and on. So what, Wolf, what, what Mock Mill is contributing, we think, is... To, uh, to a really better food system, a food system in which um, distinctive foods are, are more available to consumers and to which, in which markets are more available to the people ready to sacrifice um, a lot of security to, pro to produce those distinctive foods. Well, I think too, I think we were talking about um, that it's not even, it's just not safe to have like, all the all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak, with wheat, for instance. Like, if we're only just producing white one type of wheat, we're, we're in danger of, um, you know, like something like the Irish potato famine or something like that, where it could we could have issues with it. Also, it we're we're depleting the soil by just you know doing wheat 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 all in one area. We're destroying the soil and and making dirt. We're we're making dirt. We just have to uh, pump chemicals into to grow the wheat the next year. So. I think a lot of people are saying that um, if we start doing like more local grains and different types of grains, we could, um, you know, reduce carbon emissions, I think. Yeah, what well, is one of the big learnings I got from Dan Barber's book from the third plate um, was that, you know, plants basically, they, they look for the, they, they look for minerals and, 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 and other, and other uh, elements that the earth contains and they they're really searching searching for the whole periodic table of the elements if you like when they put their roots down in the ground and um and when we plant and, and each one wants something different you know uh, but when we plant the same thing over and over again uh we're letting it take everything it's looking for out of the soil and then we replace just three elements, we replace NPK. Now that's an exaggeration, but really that's what we do. We replace nitrogen, we replace potassium, and we replace, and we replace um, um, uh, uh, floor, um, oh heavens, uh, somebody should help me there, K, whatever P is, uh, phosphorus. Yeah. And, um, and everything else gets depleted to nothing. Yep. And uh, then all the micro, um, the, 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 the microflora that, that helps break down what animals leave behind and what plants leave behind in the soil have not got what they need uh, to live. And so they die away and you get this incredibly poor soil that you keep hearing about. 
And the answer Dan, uh, Dan um, reveals really well in the book is, that, is, is proper crop rotation, where a lot of thought is given into what do I, given the climatic conditions this year, given um, uh, what I expect and everything else, what am I going to plant behind this crop uh, now? And that decision gets made in a very short term. And the more markets farmers can address, the more things they can plant. There may be something really great to plant in a field to bring the soil back around after it's you know gone through a growth phase with a particular thing. But if there's no market for that, they're in a real quandary. And, and more often than not, while we're just looking at yield, how much you know of, of those four big crops can we get out of these fields? And, and, and we're naive to think that we can keep doing that forever. So this is, this is the story. And I think, uh, uh, and, and so reading Dan's book, I thought, well, wow, um, if everybody had one of these little tools and everybody started to get really interested in this, um, there would be those markets for more different kinds of foods that farmers could plant. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, we'd be doing much better in terms of getting our organism and also our uh, co-inhabitants of our organism what they need to thrive. And by that, I mean the, the, the microbiome that, that uh, populates our, our bodies and mostly, in most, for the most part, our intestines, um, which needs to be properly fed. And we basically ignore it when we eat rind food. We ignore the needs of, of, of those co-inhabitants when, um, when we eat refined foods. Because what they want is what we think is just ballast, is just uh, roughage, is what it used to be called, is the fiber. Our bodies can't do much with the fiber. We just, you know, we poop them out again. But uh, that's what we think. But they, they, not before they've fed the bacteria that does a good job of keeping our, um, our intestine, indeed, our whole system healthy. Uh, I like to say that eating refined foods is like a cavalry going off on a on a campaign and not bringing any horse feet along, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> the soldiers may do all right in terms of getting fed, but if you don't feed the horses, you're going to be in big trouble. Um, so that's kind of what we do when we eat refined foods. Well, you, you, I think we talked recently about this, where one of the things I don't think people recognize when they buy flour is that they could be eating flour that the wheat was maybe grown a couple of years ago. <laughs> And it's been sitting somewhere and it's maybe not, you know, the freshest stuff in the world and growing wheat myself a little bit. Um, you know, it's nice to see that when you grind something down and, and you make the flour from it, how fresh it is and the taste and the flavor, whereas the stuff you might get in the store might taste like nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think the freshness angle is, is a, is a big one and it's hard. It, it's not hard to, try to communicate it, but it seems to be hard to get the message to, to really sit. But um, I, I like to think, I like to ask this question, how many people still use powdered eggs? You know, how many people still use powdered milk? Okay, uh, how many people, um, what, would, what would you think if you walked into a grocery store and you went looking around and were confused and went in and said, um, I, I'd like, to buy some tomatoes and they said well come right over here here you can have 
you can have uh, canned tomatoes, you can have diced canned tomatoes, you can have tomato sauce, you can have tomato ketchup, you can have tomatoes soup, you can have everything you want from tomatoes right here in the tomato aisle, you know? And you go, well, I would like tomatoes, right? <laughs> and they go, well, why would you like tomatoes? You know, and I go, well, because I'd like to choose between red tomatoes, yellow tomatoes, big tomatoes, pear-shaped tomatoes, plum-shaped tomatoes, you know, um, ox heart tomatoes, you know, vine tomatoes. I, you know, I, and I like to touch them and feel them and smell them and everything else. And they look at you as if you come from outer space. Well, that's the way um, we deal with grains in our society because the store is full of stuff that's made with wheat, uh, rice, and particularly corn but there's nothing that looks like wheat or corn in there. And you can get something that looks a little bit like rice, of course, uh, but, uh, but gee, uh, you know, try to find, uh, if, you, if you looked at everything that's in the grocery store, um, you'd find out that very, very little of it is in a state that's close to its natural state. Um, and most people, wouldn't really recognize soybeans or spelt grains or rye, you know, people might recognize wheat, maybe. Um, but, but most people just don't even grasp it. So imagine not knowing what a grape looks like. And if you take it to great extremes, you're about, you and I are about the same age. There was, there's an old Charlton Heston film called Soylent Green, where oh, yeah. people are just eating platelets, you know. It, that's, of course, a bit exaggerated, um, but not all too exaggerated. No, no, not too. I think there's some relevance there right now. Yeah. So that's, you know, what we're doing is kind of uh, working at preventing, you know, making sure that that situation, that terrible situation that, that film depicted simply never happens. And we're encouraging people. And I do this, you know, I think I, I, I probably do it about 18 hours a day, encourage people to go discover new ways to use whole foods, to use whole dry foods, that's our focus, um, to do, to, to, to really enhance their diets, enhance their, the, the beauty of their offerings at the table, um, create for themselves, take along snacks that keeps them from um, grabbing the, the really awful stuff that nobody ought to eat that gets, um, you know, that gets passed under your nose when you walk through an airport. You know, <laughs> I, I, I bake a loaf of bread and, and cut the slices down to where there's only about a few millimeters left holding the loaf together. And I take that on a trip with me uh, and I can make a, a, you know, a whole transatlantic trip and feed myself just on my bread. And I know that my body is thriving on that. There's almost everything in it it needs, maybe an apple or something like that, some vitamin C. Um, for the day and long term, I can't forget that it hasn't got as much vitamin B as I need, but it's got everything else. Uh, and that way I can avoid all of the sticky, tasty, um, uh, sweet, uh, highly refined, uh, gooey, um, simply bad for me and certainly bad for my waistline, um, uh, fast foods that get offered at every corner as I walk through the airport. Well, um, Paul, I want to thank you for being on the show. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. I'd love to have you on here again, maybe as a panel with some other um, speakers as well. I'd love to do that anytime, Dean. And I hope to meet you personally when I'm uh, through San Francisco the next time. I think it's a great work you're doing. I enjoy your podcasts. And I know that um, the friends of mine who have 
who have also been your guests uh, have, have also enjoyed it. So we want to encourage you to keep doing that and, uh, uh, and really, really appreciate the, uh, the focus that you brought to, uh, you know, creating a better, a better food system. If you ever come here, please do let me know. I'd love to hang out with you for the day. That'd be wonderful. I certainly will. Thanks very much, Dean. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoyed talking to Paul, and I think that showed through. Um, he's somebody that I always like to get to talk to him, and when we get to talk, we talk for hours. So I, I hope to get to talk to him more, and I got to, hope to get to have him on the show more often as well, because we could talk about you know this topic um, of home milling forever. Next this week on Science Week, we're going to have Abby Thiel. Abby, the food scientist, you may know her by better on Friday. She's going to be talking to us about her work in food science as a food blogger and with about her YouTube blog about food science. Um, she's a wonderful person to talk to. I really enjoyed getting to talk to her as well. And like Paul, I could talk to her all day. She's just a font of information and she's really good at, you know, kind of dispelling some of the myths about food and talking about the real bare bones science of food. Um, she's just a brain and a half, and I just really love talking to her. So come and talk, listen to that episode on Friday when we air it, and we'll see you then. Until then, keep cooking. <laughs>